Good morning, everybody. My name is Megan. I'm one of the directors here at Zion, and it is a privilege to get to speak to you all today. Um, I hope that so many of you got to participate in Christmas by the Lake and all the fun activities that happened yesterday. Um, for those of you that don't know, we opened this building up to Christmas by the Lake goers. We had like inflatables in here. We broke a couple lights. We had stuff going on in the gym and the hub. Like there were people everywhere. Jason estimated like 3,000 people came through this building, which is awesome. But what I'm even more excited about is how many people of you guys that were here volunteering and welcoming people and smiling and greeting and sharing Jesus with people. Like, that's awesome. I am so privileged and honored to be part of this church, um, to, that we get to love on this city and welcome people and bring them in here and just show them how much we care about them as well. Um, I believe that we have a highlight video to show what happened yesterday. So if we could play that. It was a really fun day, and maybe for some of you crazies, it's continuing this afternoon with a polar plunge. It's not for me. No, thank you. Um, but shout out to Kate. She's doing it for Z Kids today. And Sean, I just have to say this because he said that if we could raise $2,000, then he would do it. So I'm just going to throw that out there, see what God can do. You never know. Um, but let's get that Georgia boy in the water. <laughs> yeah. I think it'd be great. Um, so just again, thank you to those of you that helped um, bringing joy and laughter in Jesus to Clear Lake. Um, if you are new with us, if you're visiting Zion today, we have been going through what we're calling our Passport Series, and we have been learning about the church in Galatia, and Paul is the author of Galatians. He's writing to this church, and we've learned that they are kind of in a bit of a rough spot, and if you're brand new to church, welcome. This happens all the time. Um, we have learned that the church in Galatia is in a bit of a, con a conflict. Um, they're arguing between who is right, who's better, who's closer to Jesus. I think this is my earring. <laughs> I was like, is there a cowbell? <laughs> uh, never have too much. Um, so they're arguing who's better, the Jews or the Gentiles? And Paul's trying to preach the message that both are welcome and both are equal through Jesus, that nothing needed to be added to what Jesus did to us to be saved. But we've also learned that some Judaizers in town were um, 
preaching kind of a different message and that you had to follow all of the Old Testament rules and laws and believe in Jesus to be saved. And they're also trying to convince the Galatian community of this and go against what Paul was teaching. Um, for those of you that are Enneagram buffs, you'll appreciate this. I'm an Enneagram 9, which means that I like to hear and understand all sides of an argument, all sides of a situation before I'm able to make my mind up on what's right or wrong. And a lot of times I find myself torn. I don't know. Both have strong points. I see where both people are coming from, and so much so that sometimes I can't decide on who's right or wrong, and I just pick Switzerland. I'm neutral. I, I don't know. Politics are really hard for me, um, but once I make my mind up, it is really hard to convince me otherwise because I've put so much thought and time and attention into deciding what I think is right or wrong. And Derek last week, or I, I, I should call him Reverend Derek now, he used the visual of viewing the world through different lenses. He put on sunglasses to, to demonstrate that we view the world sometimes through different lenses. And our upbringings, our surroundings, our family, our education, even our church, because that's what the Jews and Gentiles were experiencing, these can all impact how we view life. And I found that beliefs that I've had when I was younger are completely different now because I've lived more life or I've had more experiences that have changed some of those original views. I'm sorry, I'm just going to take this off. I'll be a pirate up here. Uh, so the Judaizers and the Jews were reading scripture through a different lens. The Jews were reading through the, scripture, the scriptures through the lens of Moses, and the Gentiles were reading through the lens of Abraham. And when I put on those Moses lenses to see what the Jews were thinking or what they, what they were thinking, how they were viewing the world, I too can see why they were clinging so tightly to their beliefs, because it's what they knew. It's how they've been raised. From birth, this is what they've been taught. So to try and change their viewpoint for Paul would have been no easy task because it's been ingrained in them. So Paul has the task of kind of undoing what they've been taught, and he uses a series of proofs to prove his point. And in my studies, I have found that Paul is way smarter than I will ever be, because he's using these proofs, like I didn't even know that was a strategy. There's like different kinds to prove his point. One he used from a supernatural experience. One he used from sacred scriptures, which Derek talked about last week. And in today's scripture, he's using an analogy or an example from everyday life, which we're all familiar with. He uses the illustration of signing a contract in human terms to the seriousness of how God takes promises. And when God signs in contract, it's final. So will you stand with me if you're able? I'm going to read today's scripture. And I just think standing is a, such a way to show honor and reverence to God. Because of this entire message today, these are the most important words that I will be sharing. Not anything that I say of my own, but God's words hold a little more weight. So... In Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, it says, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say into seeds, meaning many people, but to end your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. 
What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years ago does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You can be seated. When I told my husband Jason that I was going to be talking about the law and the promise, his response to me was, well, that's awesome. You're the perfect person to do that. You love the law. (laughs) While it was said as a compliment, I was offended. I had to pause briefly enough to examine if that were like actually true, and turns out it, it is. I do love the law. I like rules and order, and I like when people follow them. I would have so easily been a Judaizer. It's really not even funny. So I'm going to take my law-loving lenses off for today, and I'm going to put on my promise-loving lenses to view what Paul was talking about to these Galatians. He's comparing the Abrahamic covenant, which focuses on promise, to the Mosaic covenant, which focuses on the law. The Abrahamic covenant comes from Abraham, Mosaic covenant from Moses. Excuse me. Um, The Bible project says that a covenant is a chosen relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. Covenants in the Bible are a big deal. There are different kinds. Some God just makes to humans, some some people make to each other, and some just God makes to us. The Abrahamic covenant is probably one of the most famous covenants in the Bible, and it didn't require anything of Abraham but his faith. The Mosaic covenant, on the other hand, required many things. And if you broke any part of it, you were no longer in a right relationship with God. You had committed a sin. And the Abrahamic covenant was not new to the Judaizers. They they still knew it. They were still very familiar with it. But they gave priority to the Mosaic law, which is found in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. If you want some fun reading later, you can check that out. Under the Mosaic covenant, the promise was made to the people of Israel, and Moses was the mediator. God spoke to Moses so Moses could pass along a message that applied to all of the people. In these chapters of the Mosaic Covenant, God is giving the do's and the don'ts, the rules and the regulations of what the Israelites should be doing. He gave the moral laws, which we know as the Ten Commandments. He gives ceremonial laws, like how to worship, what to sacrifice and when, what to eat, the festivals that they should be celebrating, He also gave procedural laws, um, like punishments that should take place uh, if the laws were broken. And because the Mosaic law became after the Abrahamic covenant, 
the Judaizers thought that the Mosaic law kind of trumped the first and that it was really no longer about faith, which was the Abrahamic covenant, but it was about obedience to God that really mattered. And through a series of proofs, Paul is undoing this way of thinking. He's trying to make one last-ditch effort to show the Judaizers that one covenant was not more important. Rather, they worked together because both pointed toward Jesus. Jesus. He's saying that the law does not change the fact that we are saved through Jesus. The Abrahamic covenant is not more important, but it is kind of superior in that it holds more weight in terms of salvation. Paul keeps bringing it back to that grace theme, that if you believe that you are saved through anything other than grace through faith, you're wrong. He's saying that the response demanded of Abraham was so much more significant because it required faith rather than their response demanded of Moses, which required works or a self-reliance on what we do. Faith is the foundation of our relationship with God, not works. He's really trying to drive the point home that our justification is a result of faith and not works, and that he does this by pointing out the weight of God's promises and his significance of them in the life of the Jews, the Gentiles, and us today. Verse 15 says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Paul is saying that just like when we make a promise or a commitment to each other, we all know that that promise or commitment should not be broken. When I say, I promise I'm going to do this, it holds a little more weight than if I just say, yeah, I'm going to do this. It shouldn't, but it does. And Paul is saying, if we understand this as humans, how much more does God understand and how much more is he going to keep his promises and take it seriously than we do? So let's take a look at what God actually said to Abram and let's learn what it means to have actual real faith in God. And by the way, I'm going to be going back and forth between Abram and Abraham. They're the same person. It's confusing. Abram was first, and then he had a bit of a name change to Abraham, but it's the same. God does that sometimes. So turn with me to my favorite book of Genesis, if you brought your Bibles. Um, We're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then again, the blessing is repeated to Abraham right after God asked him to sacrifice his one and only son. Sound familiar? An angel steps in to intervene, and Abraham thought that the promise was for this firstborn son because God had said he would give him offspring. After waiting for so many years, he's going to give him a son, and the son was going to carry the promise. Abraham thought it was through his son Isaac that God was delivering this promise, but it wasn't. It was Jesus. And so to Abraham, when God asked him to sacrifice his one and only son, that was kind of a big deal because the promise was supposed to come through this kid. But Abraham obeyed and was about to sacrifice his one and only son. And the weight of that is huge because he trusted God. He didn't know how God was going to deliver on his promise to make his 
descendants prosperous, but he knew that somehow God was still going to fulfill it, even if he had to sacrifice this son. God says in Genesis chapter twenty-two seventeen, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities and their enemies. And this next line is what Paul's quoting in Galatians. It says, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. He didn't know how the blessing was going to come, just that it was going to. And we learn from Galatians that offspring is intentionally said in the singular, that it means one person and that one person is Jesus. God laid the foundation for the entire scriptures right here in the book of Genesis. And how cool is it that it starts with a promise, one promise made to Abram. So who was this Abram? Like, why did he deserve such honor? Abram comes from the line of Noah, obviously. We all do, right? But hundreds of years are actually between Noah and Abram. And Abram came from a family of idol worshipers, or people that worshipped and honored false gods. And all of a sudden, one day, Abram hears a voice telling him to leave his country, his people, his father's household, and he just obeys. Like, he doesn't know who he's listening to. He doesn't know who this voice is. He doesn't know it's Yahweh, the one true God. He just hears and he obeys. And so a chunk of time passes before Abram has yet to see any of God's promised blessings. And isn't that how it seems to be in real life? God says he's going to do something and you're like, when? I think that's what Abram was feeling because so much happens between God saying he's going to do this and God actually doing any of it. So Abram's sitting there waiting. He endures a famine. He moves to Egypt. He gets kicked out of Egypt for lying and saying that his wife was actually his sister. He parted ways with a good friend, and then he heard that this good friend was in trouble, that he was taken captive, so he gathers an army to fight. The army fights this huge battle, and needless to say, a lot is still going on, and Abram has yet to see any of God's promises or even hear from God yet. God never gives us a time frame. And one day God comes to Abram in a vision, and he spoke to him. If you want to read it, it's in Genesis 15. It says, I, I can just see Abram kind of getting ticked off at God because God had promised all these things. He hasn't seen it yet. So when God says, don't be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward, Abram's response is very honest to God. He's essentially saying, God, I'm still childless. You haven't even carried out your first promise. Why should I believe you now? And many wonder how Abram could have been called such a great man of faith when it seems here that he's doubting God. God says he's going to do something. He's like, you haven't done it yet. Why are you going to do it now? But there's a difference between a doubt that denies God's promises and a doubt that desires God's promises. A doubt that denies God's promise says, God, I don't believe you're ever going to do this. And a doubt that desires God's promise says, God, I want this so bad. And I don't know the details of how you're going to work it out, but I'm hoping that you're going to be faithful. A doubt that denies God's promise and a doubt that desires God's promise. Do you understand the difference? Abram is making his frustrations known And God doesn't respond angrily. 
sometimes I think we're afraid to tell God our frustrations because we're afraid of what he's going to say in return, how he's going to respond. Is he just going to cast me off or not care? He's going to be angry. But have you ever had those moments where you just want to cry out like, God, why am I still waiting? God, where are you? Or where were you? God, I'm so tired. This is so hard. I can't do this. Why me? Why my family? And God is saying, take your frustrations to me. Tell me what you're mad about. Tell me what you're frustrated about. And in that quiet space, he will answer. Sometimes it's not always the way we think he's going to answer, but he answers. I promise you, every time. I promise you, every time. So he responds to Abram by repeating this promise to him that he would have his own flesh and blood son and that his offspring would be numerous. In verse 6 it said, Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abram was fully persuaded that God would do as he promised, that he had the power to do it. There are two kinds of righteousness. One is righteousness that we accomplish ourselves, and the other is righteousness that God credits to us. So think of like a a claw machine or any sort of arcade game where you have like tokens and you have to put it in, and that's your credit. And when you insert credit, you get to play the game. Well, God is inserting credit for him, and he's crediting it to him as righteous. It didn't come from himself. God's giving it to him. So he credited Abraham righteous by his faith, not by his works, and that is what made him righteous. So Abram seems all good with this, but then literally three verses later, he questions God again. And this time he says, yeah, but God, how can I know? Like, how can I know that you're going to do this? I mean, you said you were going to, but like, how can I know? And this, again, isn't a doubt that comes from denying God, but it's a doubt that comes from desiring God. So God says, tell you what, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you, a contract in human terms. Bible commentarian Thomas Nelson says, Paul argues in Galatians 3.15, a man-made covenant, when ratified, cannot be annulled, set aside, abrogated, or voided, neither can it be added to. No new condition may be imposed, no codicil allowed. Since no one can alter, amplify, or annul a human testament after it's been duly executed, surely no one can add to God's unconditional promise to Abraham, as the legalists or the Judaizers were trying to do. God's promise is not a matter of mutual arrangement, and it remains inviolate. Even God's own covenant with Moses did not nullify or amend his covenant with Abraham, because God had made the former covenant permanent and unchangeable. In those times, those ancient Old Testament times, people made contracts with each other all the time, just like we do today. But instead of signing our name or having a notary say it's really you, they would sacrifice an animal. And much like a wedding ring today symbolizes a contract between a marriage, the, the, the same sign that um, they had Followed through with this covenant usually meant a sacrifice of some sort, usually with bloodshed of some, some way. Sacrifices were a big deal. They actually required something of you in return. 
And so God asks Abram to bring a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon, and the best of the best. So Abram gathers all these animals, and he cuts them in half, except for the birds. I don't know why, but I guess that's normal. That was custom. So he gathers all these animals, and then he waits. So I need a volunteer. Anyone? You're not raising your hand. You. Yes. All right, come on up here. We are going to make an Old Testament covenant. I brought all the animals for us, don't worry. So, I brought a heifer. Oh, and these are from the Clear Lake Library. Thank you. There's a limit of only two, but they were so kind and generous and let me check out more than two for this sermon. So, a heifer. Mm, He's later. A goat. They only had a lamb. A goat. A pigeon. And a dove. Okay, so pretend at least these three, they're chopped in half, okay? It's kind of gross. And they would join pinkies. Mm -hmm. And they would walk in a figure eight through these chopped in half pieces of animal. And imagine there's blood everywhere because it's a sacrifice, right? And a sacrifice doesn't just mean I found these animals. They were probably my own that I had to give up. It means either I had to give up something financial in nature, my family's livelihood, to show, to prove to this person that what I'm saying matters. And as they'd walk through these pieces, we're wearing long robes because it's Old Testament times. Our robes are getting dipped in the blood. And we're saying something like, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I break this covenant to you. That's how serious it was. It was a physical reminder. May I be ripped in two. No cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. This was serious. Please don't cut me in half. You can be seated. (laughs) Thank you. So Abram gathers these animals, and because God says, I'm going to make a contract with you, covenant, So he gathers them, and just like God's timing, God didn't show up right away. So he's like, well, got all the animals. I'm just going to sit down here. And he ends up falling asleep. And in his deep sleep, God comes to him in a dream and in a vision. And God repeats to him the things that he says he's going to do, the promises that he's made, But he also gives the warning that just because he gives these blessings and these promises doesn't mean that life is always going to be sunshine and roses. In human terms, and an example today, sometimes we pray and ask God for something and it doesn't always turn out the way we thought. Like maybe you've prayed for a friend to become sober and all of a sudden then that friend's in jail and you're like, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind. But maybe that was required because that's what is going to help them get sober. It's kind of like that. It, it can be not always what we expect. God can carry through, but it doesn't always mean it looks great. It doesn't always mean we're like happy and gung-ho about it. And so God is saying to Abram, I am going to give you the things that I have promised, but along the way it's going to come with slavery, with wars, 
and with hardship. And then in verse 17, God signs the contract. It says, When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. So God made the covenant, and he passed through the pieces for Abram. Abram did not sign this covenant. He did not walk through the pieces because he was sleeping. God did it for him. He made a unilateral covenant. It didn't require anything from Abram but faith. And this covenant that he makes to him is still one that we get to reap the benefits of today as Christians. Because anyone that believes with the faith of Abram gets blessed through Jesus. And God makes all kinds of, require, of promises or covenants in the Bible. And that really all they require is faith. And Kate used this stat in uh, one of her, I think it was on Mother's Day, her sermon. And I'm bringing it back because it's kind of interesting. And it says, did you know that according to Dr. Evergar Storms, there are 8,810 promises in the Bible? There are 7,487 promises from God to man. There are 991 instances of one person making a promise to another person. There are 290 promises from man to God. There are promises made by the angels that are found in Luke. There are nine promises made by Satan. And two are made by God to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once said, God never gives his children a promise which he does not intend them to use. There are some promises in the Bible which I have never yet used, but I am well assured that there will come a time of trial and trouble when I shall find that the poor, despised promise which I thought was never meant for me will be the only one on which I can float. Maybe you're someone that's been focusing a little too much on what you can do to help your situation or trying to make yourself righteous somehow on your own rather than giving, letting God credit it to you rather than trusting him with faith. So here are just 10 promises that God has made to you. Listen to these 10 and pay special attention to some that might be speaking a little louder than others. Kyla has put together a card that you can take home, put it on your fridge, stick it in your purse, pull it out when you're just needing a reminder of some of the things that God promises to you when you're in those moments of like, oh God, why me? Why now? Pull it out and take a look, read the verses and let it soak in. Here's just 10. God promises to strengthen you, to give you rest, to take care of all of your needs, not necessarily your wants. God promises to answer your prayers. He promises to work everything out for your good. Not that everything will be good, but that he'll use your trials and your lowest points to bring something good. God promises to be with you, to protect you. God promises freedom from sin. Nothing can separate you from him. God promises you everlasting life through his son, Jesus. Promises are important to God. His word should mean something to you because he's never broken a promise. He's trying to convince the Judaizers that through his first point that a law is temporary, but a promise is forever. It's permanent. 
It doesn't matter if the promise was made 430 years ago. If God said he'll do it, he's going to do it. If our inheritance or our blessing of Jesus is dependent on the law or what we do, then we're never going to get the blessing. So jump back with me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. So far we've talked about the promise to Abraham as being superior to the promise of Moses because in terms of salvation it is. It carries more weight. But remember that Paul's also trying to tell them that it's not one or the other, it's both. Both are important because both point to Jesus. In verse 19, Paul answers the question that the Judaizers were probably wondering. Well, then why then was the law given at all? Why give Moses all those rules if they don't matter? Why would God make a covenant with people, a promise to people that he knew they couldn't keep? And Paul says the law was given alongside the promise to show us our sins. Before the law, people lived by their own idea of what was right and wrong. Someone could do something wrong and say, ooh, sorry, I didn't know that that was wrong. Before the Ten Commandments, there were no laws and rules. People sinned all the time. They didn't know it was wrong. The law was given so that people would finally know right from wrong finally know a better way to live. And we can still sin because sin is just missing that mark of perfection and not know that we're doing something wrong. But now a law has been given that says, uh-uh, uh, you did something wrong. You have no excuse to not know. God's law exposes what is sinful in God's eyes, not culture's eyes, not our own eyes, God's eyes. And the Judaizers were teaching that the law makes us better. But Paul's saying, nope. The law just shows you what's wrong with you. And then Paul answers another question that they were probably wondering, which they're probably thinking, are you just bad-mouthing our law? Is our law bad somehow? And Paul's saying, I'm not against the law. You don't understand the purpose of the law. We cannot perfectly live out the law given to Moses, and God knew this. It's what, it was always a part of his plan. And how cool is it that it was established in Genesis with Abram? His plan was always to send Jesus a promise that he made to him we get to reap the benefits of today. The more perfectly we try to live, the more the world reveals to us, just the word, the Bible, reveals to us how guilty we are. Have you ever read your Bible and felt worse about things? I have. Like the more you read, the more it like, just points out how sinful or how guilty you are. Sometimes it says to me, like, guilty, you sinned again. Did you, you didn't even know this was a sin. You did it. Guilty, you're never going to get it right. You keep doing this over and over and over. Guilty, the more perfect you are, the more you're going to fail, the more perfect you try to be. And that's because sometimes the word is meant to make us feel helpless and hopeless because apart from Jesus, it is. Paul explains to us in verse 22 that the law is like our guard at a jail. It points out what we would do wrong, but at the same time, it protects us. The law leads us to Jesus. Jesus is our redeemer, our rescuer, and our savior. Why was the law given? To show us how our sins make us guilty and to show us the need 
for a savior, a need for the promised seed to whom the promise referred had come, a need to see Jesus. And through this whole section, Paul is begging them to understand the big idea, which is this. God is the God of promises. All his promises come true. We need both the law and the promise. But when we rely on the law for salvation, we've missed God's intent. The law shows us as we are, and it points us to see who Jesus really is, our Savior. The one who obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf and then died in our place so that we get to receive the promised blessing. When we understand that our salvation is by promise, our hearts are filled with gratitude and a desire to do what pleases God, to obey and to be like Jesus. Timothy Keller says the law allows us to love Jesus and enables us to show our love in grateful obedience to him. Amen.